Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 5, The Battle of Manila, 1899. The year needs to be specified as there are at least seven other Battles of Manila that I am aware of. With me, as always, are my awesome and potentially intoxicated co-host, Knight and Walla. Hey guys. Potentially intoxicated. Uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> You're the only one that's intoxicated, right? Not yet. Unless um, Knight has something to say. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a bit of a uh, a wager going, and unfortunately, um, Walla won that one. Lost. You lost. Yeah, yeah I did. I did. We're, we won't get into that. All right. Rest in peace, Barton. Yeah. No kidding. This is the first episode of Hardtack since launch that will be a battle analysis. That is, it is specifically focused on belligerent action between warring armies, so I'm really excited for this one. Thank you to those returning and for those who have been wondering when the hell we were going to do a battle episode. Here you go. We acknowledge that our topics are diverse, but that's just the way we like it. It's been fun. Uh, we're always open to suggestions, and you can message us from our host site, Anchor or leave a comment on one of our socials linked in the show notes. With that said, let's get at it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language, especially from Walla. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar. Secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. In this episode, we will discuss events leading up to the battle, which marked the official start of the Philippine War, provide an in-depth battle analysis, and evaluate the aftermath and effects the action had on the Philippine War as a whole. While we relied on many sources for this episode, a few were used heavily and deserved mention before we get started. The first will be Brian McAllister Lynn's The Philippine War, 1899-1902. to one of the better modern studies of this war. It's also hailed as one of the more unbiased studies of this war. Next is an incredible source, and I think this is by far going to be the favorite for us and our listeners. The source is the Philippine Diary Project, Diary Entries from Philippine History. I cannot, cannot stress enough, this website is incredible. It will be linked in the show notes. 
For those that enjoy reading war diaries and hearing from the mouths of those who fought in war, this is a must. Please, please give the site a visit. All right, on to the history. Americans have coined the Korean War the Forgotten War, as it was largely overshadowed by both World War II and Vietnam. However, the Korean War is far from forgotten, and the title is perhaps best bestowed upon the Philippine War, fought over a century ago from 1899 to 1902, and also overshadowed, specifically by the Spanish-American War and World War I. Perhaps as a listener, you are learning for the first time that the United States fought a war against the Philippines and are wondering, how did the United States get there in the first place? Let's have a go at summing that up as quickly and simply as possible. The Philippine War came on the tail end of the Spanish-American War. Spain was a longtime colonizer of island nations, some of which were in open rebellion against Spain at the onset of the Philippine War. Cuba was in active rebellion against the Spanish when the United States stepped in. Together, the Cubans and the United States defeated Spain. Spain was forced to surrender colonies, one of which was the Philippines, colonized by Spain beginning in 1565. When the Spanish were defeated in the Spanish-American War, the Treaty of Paris, 1898, because there were multiple treaties of Paris, was signed and Spain ceded its long-standing colony of the Philippines to the United States. With the Spanish having been defeated and forced to cede its colonies, there was fear in the Philippines that the yoke hadn't been truly removed, but traded from one colonizer to another. From history.state.gov After the Spanish-American War, while the American public and politicians debated the annexation question, Filipino revolutionaries under Emilio Aguinaldo seized control of most of the Philippines' main island of Luzon and proclaimed the establishment of the independent Philippine Republic. When it became clear that U.S. forces were intent on imposing American colonial control over the islands, the early clashes between the two sides in 1899 swelled into an all-out war, that being the Philippine War. Americans tended to refer to the ensuing conflict as an insurrection, rather than acknowledge the Filipinos' contention that they were fighting to ward off a foreign invader. End quote. Before we go on further... I want to mention about the importance of the city of Manila. So Manila is located on the island of Luzon, and it served the capital of the Philippines, and it is still the capital of the Philippines today. Absolutely beautiful city, and it was and both is a beautiful city. Um, one of the big figures that we'll be talking about here later, Otis, he even described the country about Manila is peaceful, and the city is certainly quiet. Manila was also a very big, important city of trade under Spanish rule. There was even what's called the Manila Gallon, and that was a big route of trade, very important route of trade. It was, it, well, it was and is considered by modern scholars as one of the prefiguring leading cities equivalent to what we would call New York City today. It was that big of an important city of trade under the Spanish rule. And so with that being said, that's the importance of Manila. It's the capital. It's this huge trading place. And because of that importance, uh, you would even have figures from the Spanish-American War, Admiral George Dewey, to suggest to President McKinley that, if anything, keep Manila and the base at Cavite and 
the rest of the islands be damned. All right. Thank you for that. So there we have what is hopefully an understandable, though admittedly bare bones background leading up to the war, which officially began with this episode's subject, the Battle of Manila, 1899. At this point, we're now going to get into the key leaders or the generals of both of the belligerent forces, starting with uh, Emilio Aguinaldo. All right, Knight, go ahead and take it away. So while we are exploring this subject of the Battle of Manila and U.S. involvement in the Philippines, Emilio Aguinaldo was definitely mentioned a lot. Aguinaldo was the leader of the Philippine Republican Army, or the PRA for short, at the onset of the Philippine War. The army was also known as the Army of Liberation, as Aguinaldo called it, though we will refer to this group as the PRA from this point forward. How it became the leader is an interesting bit of history and ripe with the politically questionable rise to power you would expect from a people undergoing revolution after centuries of oppression. In 1892, Filipinos interested in the overthrow of Spanish rule founded the Cantipunan, most honorable society of the sons of the country. It operated as an alternative Filipino government complete with a president and a cabinet. It began as a small, obscure nationalist organization and was able to seize control of most of the Tagalog area south of Manila under the leadership of Andres Bonifacio. However, by March 1897, Dissatisfaction with Contipunan's success against the Spanish, except separated by fighting within the Contipunan, led to the formation of a new revolutionary party, which Emilio Aguinaldo was elected president of. Aguinaldo was then installed as head of the Contipunan on 22nd of March, 1897. Ironically, the coup was justified under the pretenses that Bonifacios planned a coup against them. Bonifacio was arrested, tried, and executed by Aguinaldo's supporters based on these accusations. Aguinaldo replaced the founder of the Contipunan, and the two parties merged. Filipino revolutionaries on Aguinaldo then seized control of most of the Philippines' main island of Luzon, and proclaimed the establishment of the independent Philippine Republic on June 12th, 1898. All right, so there is a broad brushstroke history of Aguinaldo's rise to power and his role as the head of the newly proclaimed Philippine Republic. Aguinaldo will continue to appear in this episode, given his role as leader of the nascent republic and the PRA. Now we're going to take a look at the leader of the 8th Corps, General L.L.S. Otis. The general service record prior to assignment in the Philippines began during the American Civil War as a captain of volunteers in the 140th New York Infantry Regiment, and he was later promoted to lieutenant colonel before being forced into medical retirement in 1865, after having been seriously wounded at the Siege of Petersburg, uh, which took place between 1864 and 65. Recovering after the war, Otis made his way back into the Army ranks in 1869, where he received an appointment to Lieutenant Colonel over the 22nd Infantry Regiment. Between 1880 and his promotion to Brigadier General in 1893, Otis served significantly in the American West during the Indian Wars. Fast forward to 1898, Otis was assigned to direct affairs during the initial phases of U.S. military involvement in the Philippines as second-in-command 
to Major General Wesley Merritt. He would shortly succeed Merritt as commander of the 8th Corps and military governor of the Philippines after Merritt requested relief from his post. There are a few factors that led to Merritt requesting relief from his post. It should be understood that then-President of the United States, William McKinley, had been opposed to American imperialism, but ultimately decided the U.S. needed to annex the Philippines before Japan could. Once the United States became involved, McKinley kept up a policy of pacification, preaching kindness and compassion, so hearts and minds, though ultimately McKinley failed to provide any clear instruction and executing policy to his military governors, which caused a lot of frustration. From Brian Lynn's The Philippine War, 1899 to 1902, quote, in his mid-60s and in poor health, he was frustrated by McKinley's refusal to provide clear guidelines. The miserable conditions in Manila further increased his desire to return home, end quote. Merritt's request was honored, and real shocker, Merritt having had his request granted, made its way through the ranks, and other officers assigned to the Philippines began applying for transfers back to the United States. Otis, now in charge, disliked Filipinos and referred to Aguinaldo's forces as a band of looters. So, given his views on the people of the Philippines and lacking any clear directives from McKinley, also much more headstrong than Merritt, Otis took initiative and issued a proclamation on January 4th, 1899, which stated that the United States had sovereignty over the Philippine Islands. Now we no longer have a situation where the American military was there as a pacification force, but as a strong arm occupation force, a military government where the United States called the shots. Naturally, this pissed off Aguinaldo and many of the Filipino people. And there we go. Now we have a general overview of the leaders of both the PRA and the 8th Corps. And we can transition into talking a bit more about those forces. The 8th Corps was originally sent as an expeditionary force assembled for service in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. Naturally, as the two wars nearly overlapped and the likelihood of war increased in the Philippines, the 8th Corps remained as the occupying force. So though it was sent to seize Manila from the Spanish, the role of the 8th Corps expanded to occupation and pacification in the Philippines once the archipelago was acquired by the United States. The original strength of the 8th Army Corps in 1898 was 20,000, though only 25% were regulars. The remaining 75% of the 8th Corps were U.S. volunteers. For those that are uncertain... What is meant by volunteers, these were military volunteers called up during wartime to augment United States Army forces, regular forces. They were neither regular army or militia. The Militia Act of 1903, enacted one year after the Philippine War, founded what is best known today as the National Guard. So from the Philippine War all the way back to the late 1700s, the United States relied on volunteers. Of the 20,000 American troops of the 8th Corps, 800 were officers. The enlisted men were predominantly divided between two groups. There were some 8,000 in Manila. 11,000 were stretched out along a defensive perimeter inside the Zapote Line. And the Zapote Line, uh, for, for those that are unclear on this one, uh, that was a defensive system built during the period of Spanish occupation in the Philippines. It was a complex of blockhouses and military trenches from Fort San Antonio Abad to the Zapote River. So what exactly are blockhouses? <laughs> 
So essentially what a blockhouse was, was a guard tower or small fort, a fortification along a perimeter that was used as a lookout tower or guard tower, uh, typically made of concrete or heavy timber. Honestly, it was just a glorified lookout tower. That's that. That's what a, <laughs> okay. a blockhouse is. Right. Okay. Um, I was wondering, since you mentioned just really briefly before about military trenches, I was wondering if trench warfare was pretty significant in this battle or if perhaps trench warfare was even designated as a official term from military history historians at this time? Yeah, so that's a great question. So trench warfare is typically associated with World War One, right? The Great War. And looking and, and examining the Philippine War, trench warfare was relevant. Now, I don't know if trench warfare was was used as a general term um, at the time or even in the decades preceding. Uh, in the research that I found, trench warfare was associated with the Philippine War. And I can say that it's I, – I would say that it's fair to associate the phrase trench warfare with the Philippine War because when you look at – the efforts of the the PRA, uh, the the Philippine Republican Army, and preparing for what they knew was going to be a difficult difficult fight should it come to that uh, with United States Army forces, they absolutely did uh, use trench warfare and preparing. They they dug entrenchments, they made redoubts and and battlements, and they lined they they lined some of their defenses with barbed wire. And all these things that we associate oh, wow. with World War One, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but here we are, uh, and and what? I'm sorry uh, if people disagree. From this point forward, I'll always refer to the Philippine War as the Forgotten War because <laughs> it truly is in comparison to to, to the Korean War. Um, here we have all these different things, and what is a forgotten war being attributed to? World War One, where it exists here in the year 1899, 15, 15 years prior. So, But the United States didn't use any trenches. That was mostly from the PRA, correct? It was mostly from the PRA. And if the when, when the United States did use trenches, it was typically falling into uh, PRA embattlements and entrenchment that had been created prior to... Um, Already been built, yeah. Yeah, everything had already been built. Exactly that. Exactly that. Okay. Remainder of the 20,000 8th Army Corps troops that were not already deployed in Manila or stretched out along the defensive perimeter of the Zapote line uh, were in transports and other locations near Manila. At the Battle of Manila, the 8th Corps was broken into the 1st and 2nd Divisions, each having two brigades and artillery support. The 1st Division was led by Brigadier General Thomas M. Anderson, and the 2nd by Major General Arthur MacArthur. If that name sounds familiar, it is because he was the father of General Douglas MacArthur, who famously stated of the Philippines after the Japanese captured the Philippines in World War II, I will return. This was his promise to return to and free the Philippines from Japan. So, there we have a simple overview of the 8th Army Corps. Since we have just discussed about the 8th Army, I just wanted to talk about the weaponry that they've had, that they had in this 
whole engagement. The U.S. Army had 30 to 40 caliber Krag Orgeson rifles, and these were t and these were smokeless rifles. However, some still had the former M1873 trapdoor Springfield rifle and carbine, and these were single shot and used black powder cartridges. And that's important to remember because so you have this. They're unloading out these new rifles, these Krag Horgensen rifles that were smokeless. There were still a lot of people at this time because, you know, things aren't just immediate uh, back in the past as they are like today. And so you still had some of these people that still had these single fire, clearly producing visible smoke rifles. And that is kind of like a big detail to note as you read on here. Because smokeless means if you fired, you didn't give up your position. Smoke, you know, mm. well, you gave up your position, so. Yeah, no, uh, that, that's a great point. I mean, and when you talk about the fog of war, both literally and figuratively, th th I mean, this is the fog of war. Now, we're going to hear a little bit about the Philippine Republican Army, the PRA, or the Army of Liberation. So this brings us to the forces of the PRA. The PRA was led by General Emilio Aguinaldo and his chief of operations, General Antonio Luna. The exact numbers of the PRA are unknown, but have been estimated at anywhere from 15,000 to 40,000. In the months leading up to the February 4th, the PRA had been busy creating a loose envelopment around the US forces, extending their field works and placed artillery and created strong points both for defence and attack. These strong points were broken into four zones. The first was south of Manila with its left flank against Manila Bay. The second zone was next to the first and rested its flank against the Pasig River. The third was north of the second and occupied seven towns. And finally, the fourth zone was north of Manila with its right, right flank also against Manila Bay like the first. These four zones created a loose encirclement of the capital city of Manila which was held by US forces. And again, before we move on, also to discuss, the Filipino forces here, they had very few modern firearms, or I should mention that modern by this time's, this time frame's standards. They had very few of the latest firearms. Most of any of the firearms that they had came from deserters of the Spanish side from the Spanish-American War. However, they did have a few primitive matchlocks and cannons that they had privately made. And some individuals even made uh, 65 and 75 brass cartridge weapons individually. But they're, they're just as we talked about the U.S. Army, you know, having these 30 to 40 Craig Horgensen rifles, the Filipino side did not have anything modern. Not on a mass scale, anyway. We cannot move forward without also making brief mention of the naval support available to the 8th Corps from Manila Bay. United States Navy's Asiatic Squadron was commanded by Commodore George Dewey and had been in Manila Bay since April 30th, 1898. The squadron was called to the Philippines to fight Spain in the Spanish-American War and remained after Spain's defeat to provide support for the 8th Army Corps occupation of Manila. The squadron consisted of only nine ships when the Battle of Manila Bay took place on the 1st of May, 1898. Four were cruisers, two were gunboats, one 
a revenue cutter and two supply steamers purchased in Hong Kong before arriving in the Philippines. Now, the Navy had some differences in terms of technology to the Army. So as we had talked about the Army having the 30 and 40 Craig Horgeson rifles, the Navy had some different technology to them. The Navy had 45 to 70 Remington Lee Navy magazine rifles, and those were bolt-action rifles in 1899. Then they had the M1899, and that was made to have 30 to 40, and had a 6mm smokeless powder cartridges. Navy soldiers were also given Colt 38 caliber revolvers that had swing-out cylinders. And the Army also had these, but not as much. And then as a final note before we move on here, as far as forces and their weaponry, U.S. forces would also have Gatling guns stationed near Manila, unlike, of course, the Filipino forces had. So we have set the stage for the first and bloodiest battle of the Philippine War, the Battle of Manila, 1899. We know why the U.S. was there how Aguinaldo and his Philippine Republic came to be, and with the appointment of Otis as military governor, why tensions between Otis's 8th Army Corps and Aguinaldo's PRA escalated to the point of war. The Philippine War erupted in Manila on the night of February 4, 1899. According to the majority of American narratives, the initial shots were fired by Private William Grayson of the Nebraska Volunteers. The 1st Nebraska Volunteers were under the 2nd Brigade of the 2nd Division and led by Brigadier General Irving Hale. From Brian Lynn's The Philippine War, accordingly, at about 8 o'clock p.m., three soldiers began walking from Santol toward Blockhouse 7. By then, it would have been quite dark, and it is likely their path was bordered by heavy brush, further obscuring the view. After proceeding roughly 100 yards, the patrol waited a few minutes. What happened next is still unclear. According to one Filipino account, the patrol suddenly and without warning fired on Corporal Anastasio Felix and two companions, who were peaceably standing in the doorway of Blockhouse 7. According to most participants, Private William Grayson was a short distance in front when suddenly three or four armed men appeared five yards ahead of him. He immediately called halt as did another soldier. Instead, the Filipinos continued to advance and cock their weapons, provoking Grayson to call halt again and then fire, as did his companions. The three soldiers then fell back, perhaps sprinting to Santol, where Wedden met them. By this time, they could, or thought they could, hear enemy forces approaching Blockhouse 7. We can see from the text that the responsible party for starting the war is a debatable topic with both sides pointing fingers. We have Filipino and American accounts. There are a few reasons for this. The first is that the two sides had engaged in small pissing contests for more than six months before open hostilities actually broke out on February 4th. Not unexpected when two military forces spend day after day positioned across from each other and around the other with weapons at the ready, but are told to exercise restraint. Soldiers get bored. They have a tendency to get fidgety. Secondly, you can add to this the heightened tensions felt from a group that wants to go home, this being the 8th Army Corps, 
and a group that feels that they are being unjustly occupied. Again, we're referencing the Philippines uh, being colonized since the mid 1500s by the Spanish thinking that they're free and then the United States stepping in and annexing the nation. Top all of that off with the uncertainty that comes with the cover of night and a humid, uncomfortable environment. Is anyone really surprised that rounds were discharged? Leave it to a private. What we do know is that Private Grayson fired first. After Grayson and his squad fired, there was sporadic firing, and most that heard it wrote the shots off as one of the typical squabbles that had been going on for months. However, shots continued and increased all along the northern line, and most of Brigadier General Hale's brigade became engaged. The Battle of Manila, 1899, was on, and so too was the Philippine War. From the diary of Robert Bruce Payne, a private in Company D of the 1st Nebraska Volunteer Infantry Regiment. At about 8 o'clock, I heard a rifle shot, a Springfield. We did not pay much attention to this, but directly, we heard two more shots. We began to hastily put on our stuff. But before we could get on our belts and haversacks, firing began on our camp from all sides, and balls began to bang and chug around us. So as you can see, the first shot fired was from a Springfield. This does, in fact, corroborate the claim that an American fired first. It was Grayson Springfield that fired. All right, so here we go with a synopsis, a play-by-play, -play, really, of the battle. At approximately 2000 hours, or 8 p.m. for those who can only count to 12, Private William Grayson of the 1st Nebraska Volunteers fired on a patrol of PRA soldiers at Blockhouse 7, outside the village of Santa Mesa in what was supposed to be a neutral zone. Fighting ensued as PRA soldiers began infiltrating the Nebraskan line. About one hour after hostilities began, the 1st Colorado, also a subordinate command of the 2nd Brigade along with the 1st Nebraska, fell under attack. Reinforcements were brought up. And at daybreak, a full firefight began. As dawn approached, regiments within the 1st Brigade, under the command of Brigadier General Harrison Gray Otis, of note, no relation to the military governor and commander of the 8th Army Corps, General Elwell Otis, became fully engaged in a firefight with soldiers of the PRA. Residents of Manila gathered to watch the battle. From Lynn's book, the battles on the outskirts were a gala event and thousands swarmed to the waterfront or the suburbs to watch the view. I really want us to consider that for a moment. Here we have a civilian population who <laughs> has been at war for years, has been occupied as a colony for years. Here's the outbreak of war outside the walls of Manila and decides, hey guys, uh, Breakfast with a show, let's watch. This is no different than what we had in the American Civil War. Like, people would gather and make a big party to watch the whole fight happen. Only for, like, the fight to come after them, and then they all had to run away and flee, um, in some cases. But, like, this was common for many areas, and sometimes it just seems to be common because, like, you're on this island and, you know, you sometimes get bored and there's excitement, you know? 
even American life, you know, life got boring. And so like, here's a fight. Like, imagine if you're just a barn out in the middle of nowhere, and then you just wake up and there's a big battlefield going on against Union and Confederate sources, forces, and they're just fighting. <laughs> like, that's, that's exciting. And so I kind of say the same thing here. Like, here's Manila, the capital of the Philippines, this important and major trade center, at, like the, as I said earlier, the equivalent of New York City of the time. And here it is, or the equivalent of New York City of today. And it was then, and here it is, like, here's this fight going on. Like, this would be, like, if you're just a family, you have nothing better to do, then here you go. Entertainment. Yeah, and it's not too far off of some of the shit we see modern day where, like, some of the riots and some of the shootings that happen in the United States, uh, and not to go there. But half the time, as soon as something negative happens, people whip out their fucking phone. And they're like, oh, <laughs> this is going on the TikTok or this is going on Instagram or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. fucking brain dead social media site people are using. And they post this shit. And, and I, I couldn't not read this and go, you know what? This is nothing new. The only difference is it's being broadcast now in, in, in the 2000s, whereas before there, there was no technology available to broadcast it. But if they could have, oh, yeah, they, they definitely would have. In some ways, ironic though, like people nowadays can offer the first town accounts of what's going down in real time. <laughs> like, here we can only rely on, you know, what's written. And if we don't have that, then whoops. But nowadays, you know, we get first town accounts, we can get it fresh right off from someone's phone. Aguinaldo had intended for there to be a coordinated attack against the Americans, but the gunfire caught the city, to include his cells, by surprise. The result was a short-lived, uncoordinated revolt within the city characterized by random arson and random sniper attacks. The revolt was quickly contained by the provost guard in Manila. Dozens were arrested and resistant troops loyal to Aguinaldo were dealt with harshly. The Provost Marshal of Manila, Major General Robert Patterson Hughes, was quoted as saying, when the police company got through with them, the undertaker had enough business for the day. The Manila revolt that took place during the battle is easy to overlook, but it is actually really important and relevant to the battle as a whole. Had the provost guard failed to rapidly and decisively respond, the city would have fallen to the PRA, and the 8th Corps would have found itself under attack from all directions. The 2nd Division Commander, Major General MacArthur, had laid out a battle plan that was to be initiated if hostilities ensued. The plan called for the whole of the 2nd Division, so both brigades and the artillery, to execute an all-out attack on the PRA's main line, which was entrenched along the Santa Mesa Ridge. The Santa Mesa Ridge ran all along the northern front of Manila. And if we recall from uh, earlier in the episode, the PRA had extended their field works. They had emplaced artillery and created strong points, both for defense and attack, so offense and defense. 
they had created a strong main line all around. Coupled with the enemy defenses, the second also had to contend with the terrain, which was an assortment of open rice fields, bamboo thickets, and finally an uphill broken climb, all to reach the enemies protected by earthworks, barbed wire, and headstones from a cemetery. To put it plainly, the second was going to have a really shitty time going on the offensive. The weather in Manila on the morning of Sunday, August 5th, this is the day after Grayson from the 1st Nebraska opened, fired, uh, opened fire. The weather was bright, the skies were clear, and it was perfect weather for artillery support. Artillery and naval bombardment from Manila Bay began firing on enemy locations, blockhouses, and trenches. The Utah Battery, assigned to the 2nd Division, these guys are going to be heroes throughout this battle. Uh, so keep the Utah battery in mind. They opened fire with 3.2-inch field guns, while the cruiser, the Charleston, bombarded the PRA with 8-inch shells. And the Kalo, or Kalau, attacked various points along Manila Bay with artillery and machine gun fire. The left flank of the PRA forces, the first zone, uh, that was to the south of Manila, and the right flank of the fourth zone was to the north, both of which were against the shores of the bay. Lead troops of the second division used the cover of artillery and gun smoke to leapfrog each other in rushes across the open rice fields and the bamboo thickets. The 20th Kansas Volunteers fought among huts and charged past their intended objective bringing them into the entrenched positions of the PRA. So the group moved so far forward, they actually had to be recalled later and reformed because they had become disorganized. Things became deadly for the 3rd Artillery, fighting on the 20th's right. The regulars assigned to the 3rd were funneled into sort of a narrow route of advance. They were flanked on both sides because of this narrow advance by dikes and swampland. So that's what created that, that kind of funnel. Caught in the narrow strip, enemy fire took the lives of five soldiers and wounded another 19. They were forced to fall back and regroup as well. Having regrouped and taken care of their casualties, the charge uphill was once again attempted, but this time with success, and the Chinese church at the top of the hill was captured at 14.30, or again, 2.30 p.m. on Sunday the 5th. While all this was going on, the Pennsylvania and Montana regiments were fighting house by house, street by street, through a suburb called Tando. Uh, once they got through and out of some of the brush, they were hit by gunfire from the redoubts on Loloma Church and flinking fire from a Chinese cemetery. This is uh, really interesting, and, and going back to that Philippine diary project, from the diary of John Henry Asendorf, a private in the 10th Pennsylvania Volunteer Regiment under the 1st Brigade, 2nd Division, who fought on the left flank of the 20th Kansas and 3rd Artillery. Good God, talking about military jargon. Seeing that we couldn't stand their fire, we crept on hands and feet to the right, which was a hillside, on which was a Chinese cemetery with thousands of tombstones for breastworks. But it has strong wire fence around it, which made it hard to cross with our guns and ammunition. Here, two of our company were wounded, and a few minutes later, Major Everhart Beerer uh, was hit with a brass bullet through the left shoulder and arm. Two men, Carl DeBolt and George Rockwell, 
Both were also hit with brass bullets through their shoulders. They were hurriedly carried back by our men. The rebels were putting up a stubborn fight, but after a couple hours of the battery, we again made a desperate fight and the rebels soon had to flee from there. Many of them were killed. Looking at a map of the area, the Chinese cemetery and La Loma Hill, upon the top of which was the La Loma Church, sat to the north and east of Manila, the suburb of Tondo immediately north of Manila and near the bay. So for some context, all the fighting among the 2nd Division's 1st Brigade just described is happening in the north. Grayson and his ilk and the fighting from the late night and early hours of the 5th occur to the east of Manila. 1st Brigade has not had an easy go of things. Checking in with the 2nd Brigade, these guys may as well have been conducting an ideal training exercise. The brigade began its advance a bit after 0800 hours and enjoyed accurate artillery support from the Utah Battery and naval ships in the bay. The Nebraskans and Grayson were clearing defenses along the San Juan River in the east and were able to link up with the Colorado and Tennessee regiments along a three-mile front in attacking the PRA on San Juan del Norte Hill. The first enjoyed so much success in their initial advance, they actually shifted the first South Dakota resume over to La Loma for a flank attack in support of the tenacious and spirited 2nd Brigade. Lynn described the advance as having occurred in, quote, short, limited attacks, the troops firing in volleys and then rushing forward from trench line to trench line, end quote. He described it as a textbook advance and declares it an example of the soundness of the U.S. Army's tactics. By the end of the day on the 5th, Major General MacArthur's 2nd Division had effectively broken the PRA line of defense and captured the ridge line north of Manila. The 3rd Artillery suffered the highest casualties. To the south of Manila... Brigadier General Anderson's 1st Division was given the go-ahead by General Otis for a preemptive attack against the PRA line using the might of his entire division. At 0800 on the 5th, artillery shells from the 6th US Artillery and naval guns in the bay bombarded Filipino positions. The PRA was positioned to the south between the suburbs of Santa Ana and Pandacan. Pandacan was a small islet in the Pasig River. The Pasig ran further south and swung around Santa Ana to the north, where it met with San Juana bit to the northeast. Brigadier General Charles King rode forward with the 1st Division's 1st Brigade, wearing his full dress uniform and smoking a cigar. So there's that. The PR commander was Brigadier General P.O. Day Pillar, and perhaps feeling confident, failed to create a plan of retreat. His forces were primarily located around Pandacan. So this would be the right flank of the PRA line. When the seemingly dauntless left flank of the 1st Brigade advanced up the earthworks, Pilar's hard-pressed ranks were forced to retreat in the Pisag, where many of them were shot in crossing or drowned. On the American right, the PR left, the 1st California attacked Santa Ana. It was here that the 1st Division had its most difficult go of the battle, and it was short-lived. The 1st California was supposed to receive cover in their advance from the 1st Wyoming, who had been delayed. The commander of the 1st California, Colonel James Smith, 
was a hell of a leader and kept his cool under intense pressure. He shifted a company to bolster the first and held the line until Wyoming troops arrived. The assault on Santa Ana resumed and Smith's men came out on top. To the far south, events were indiscriminate. A mix of the 1st California and Washington were attacking Blockhouse 11 and were ordered by their commander to torch all buildings suspected of containing Filipino troops. The result was a two-hour house-by-house fight that ended in PRA retreat. What followed was a bit of American disorganisation. The fires caused the brigade to scatter and became disjointed and uncoordinated. Brigadier General Anderson's battle plan had called for the 2nd Brigade to wait on the 1st to advance and get into position, then advance along the entire front, forcing back the PRA, executing a left sweep and trapping PRA forces between two brigades in a pincer movement. Instead, the 2nd remained in the trenches for some three hours while the 1st attacked and were met with the fierce combat from the PRA. The attack on the blockhouse cost the 1st Brigade 8 killed and 18 wounded. After much confusion, the 1st North Dakota joined the fray and charged the PRA on the right, later accompanied by the 1st Tennessee who aided in further pushing back the already retreating Filipino forces, taking the field from Pendican to the south at San Pedro Makati. After two days of the bloodiest and first battle of the Philippine War, fought along a 16-mile front, the United States had won. Filipino casualties, which can only be estimated, are said to have been as high as 4,000, with 700 of the total killed in action. Brigadier General Anderson claimed that his division alone buried 238 and took 306 prisoners. American casualties were strikingly less, with 238 casualties total, 44 of whom were killed in action or died later of their wounds. This brings up an interesting question that historians have wondered about. Why is this such a lopsided victory for the U.S.? And especially since, you know, the PRA, this is their home turf. Like, they know the terrain better than any one of the American forces. So how did the U.S. win so, so well? And so a few reasons have kind of been concluded from it. First is naval gunfire. That was a huge advantage, like as you mentioned, the Utah Battery. That was a huge advantage over the PRA. Because they have a bigger firepower and that the PRA never had. And that also leads to the general point of the U.S. having superior guns in general over the PRA. You know, they had those 30-40s Craig Corkison rifles or Springfield rifles or the Colts or your Remington Lee Navy magazine rifles versus, you know, the PRA not having very many of those modern firearms and they had matchlocks even and maybe some primitive cannons made and at best you had well, maybe if you were just one of the snipers maybe or someone who just was lucky made a 65 and 75 brass cartridge weapon you know like the arms race the u.s definitely dominated and there's also a thing about training um the filipino force the pra they had limited ammunition you know, they don't have a factory just pumping out 
ammunition to fight with and during all the US, you know, it sure it will take a few moments, but you know, they're going to get ammunition to be pranked, to be cranked out. Um, so mm. what that means is right. if you're the PRA, you don't have time to just take practice shots to practice your aim because your ammunition is very limited. Mm. And then that leads to final point about how the PRA fought. And one of the, this has been called a patron-client fighting strategy. But basically, what Aguinaldo had was you had this collection of patrons and clients. And what really made that limited, though, was there's only so much that each patron could demand of a client. And, of course, you know, death is not always one of those things that you can demand easily. And the other bit about it was, of yeah. course, Aguinaldo had learned from the Spanish War, you know, he's going to make what you had was the individual groups. Because these are all groups that were tied by language, um, similar lifestyles, as it were. But when Aguinaldo gained control, he tried to centralize it, especially in the face of U.S. forces. And that didn't bode well. Because, as Lin actually would talk about in another of his works, quote, when taken out of their villages and provinces, merged into larger units commanded by outsiders who could not speak their dialect, and required to stand against a better armed and trained enemy, the social cohesion that tied Filipino soldiers to their comrades and officers broke down. Lin would also go on to describe Aguinaldo's forces resembled a feudal levy more than a modern military organization. End quote. And so, between just outdated technology and the way Aguinaldo's forces were organized, really led to the detriment and uh, the lopsidedness of casualties for the U.S. and the PRA. No, those are those, those are all great points, and and honestly, <laughs> looking at the casualty rates among both belligerents, it's incredibly lopsided, and there were multiple factors that that that, that played into that. And I think you covered that very well, and and I think it's an accurate assessment. I suppose, like, on the American side, then, um, how did the leadership of General L.L. Stephen Otis contribute to the success of the American victory of this battle overall? Just curious to know what you guys think. Yeah, sure. So, uh, looking at General Otis, uh, and even through the battle synopsis and, and the narrative, uh, for the for the for the mid portion of the episode, Otis wasn't mentioned. That's notable, and um, it can be seen as a positive or a negative. And what what I see and and reflecting on that is the fact that Otis was in an odd position as a leader. Um, and again, he was a military governor, so at this point, he's really more political than he is militant. But in that he allowed this this autonomy amongst his his subordinates 
And when you allow, especially, you got to understand, this guy was operating out of Manila, right? So he's not on the battlefield. He's receiving battlefield reports. um, But those those come with some delay so for an individual like otis for for him to have been housed in in a stronghold like manila at the time because that's what it was him allowing uh this this disciplined autonomy this disciplined initiative amongst his subordinates uh speaks to his leadership and it speaks to his leadership in a sense where uh and this still persists in the united states military today where it's Hey, I'm the commander. Here's my intent. Here's the goals that I have set out for you to accomplish. Uh, here is what is legally, ethically, and and morally uh, allowable. Work within the 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 restraints of the confines of the legal, ethical, and moral boundaries, and accomplish the mission that I've set forward for you. And you, you see that amongst some of the leadership. Uh, and the Battle of Manila. Now, I'm not going to say that there were not crimes or or questionable offenses committed by both sides. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go there. That's a different conversation. But but when you allow for your subordinates on the battlefields who are in the thick of it to make tactical decisions, you've got a greater you've got a greater chance of success. To answer the question, had Otis tried to micromanage the battlefield? from a position removed from the battlefield, it, the results would have been largely negative. He allowed autonomy amongst his subordinates to just execute based on their judgment, given given the, the, the mission goals that he had set forth. In the United States, the battle set off a political firestorm as anti-imperialist congressional leaders railed against the outbreak of war and demanded answers from military leaders as to who initiated hostilities and why. On the other side of the aisle, the actions of the United States Army were said to have been defensive as, quote, our forces were attacked by the Tagalogs who attempted capture of the city. End quote. The battle was a conventional battle, and perhaps the greatest result from it, specifically its impact on the remainder of the war, was that it informed the PRA and its leadership that they could not best the United States Army using conventional means. This is congruent with the remainder of the war's battles. The first half of the war can be said to have been conventional and, for the most part, took place on the main island of Luzon. The latter half of the war was more irregular. It was characterized by increasing division among Aguinaldo's military commanders, which naturally filtered down to the ranks. Following the defeat, the PRA would increasingly resort to guerrilla tactics and warfare against their new oppressors. A few things. Uh, I really wanted to read this one account because we're talking about just how violent this Battle of Manila was. And there was one account, well, there's two different accounts that really dragged my eye. Now, I will have to warn audiences here. there is a lot of racial language used here, but there was one quote from Chris A. Bell on February 6th, quote, Most of the firing at night is by the natives answered by and an occasion volley from our men. But at daylight, 
much to the purpose of the natives who expected us to remain quiet, our men opened fire at the same time. Dewey let them have it. The result was something awful. Natives were killed by them by the hundreds. They did so much shooting from bamboo huts that an order came to fire the huts as the men advanced. This was done, and men, women, and children suffered. The natives are but poor fighters and do not understand our style charging under fire. Then we have John E.T. Mislaps on February 5th writing, Fighting is still in progress. Thousands are reported killed. Another shot just this moment around our corner. Our troops were fired at from windows in the nation town or quarter near Tondo Church, which was Roman Catholic. Our men enfiladled the quarter shooting through the frail huts. Men, women, and babies were killed. The dead are piled in heaps. End quote. And so this war, the PRA didn't suffer alone. Like this took out families too. The fighting did. And to end this, I feel like this quote from John E.T. Misleps on February 6th, somewhat poetic, but also appropriate, maybe not. But anyway, the quote, The sun is rising beautifully over the city of Manila as I write about, and the birds are singing sweetly as though the grim war had not left its mark in this section. End quote. And that's on February 6th a day after the Battle of Manila, which was just the first battle of the Philippine War. All right, so there it is, the Battle of Manila, 1899. While it may have seemed exhaustive, there was much more we could have included. I hope we have at least done justice to what is largely an understudied battle and an understudied and often forgotten war. And the United States... Filipino history in its entirety is usually disregarded. And for the Philippines, this war and the events that followed until after World War II are a great deal, and they deserve our recognition and our acknowledgement. Recognition and acknowledgement is correct, uh, because as Lynn brought up uh, in one of his following, he stated, quote, and, he, and this is for his work, um, that we had mentioned previously, the Philippine War, 1899 through 1902. Quote, As the bibliography and notes indicate, there has been some use of Philippine secondary literature as well as captured documents titled the Philippine Insurgent Records in the National Archives. I initially hoped to write a book that covered both sites equally. However, a visit to several archival collections in the Philippines, as well as long conversations with specialists in the islands, convinced me that the Filipino side must away another scholar. The theft of thousands of revolutionary documents from the Philippine National Archives only increases the difficulty of this project. I wanted to end quote, and I wanted to talk about that because here we have talked a lot about a lot of from the diaries of American soldiers, and we've talked a lot about the American side, and so audiences are probably rightly is why don't we present a more human or even the side from the PRA? And the answer to that is we can't. Either the documents that were written from by PRA soldiers, citizens, 
have been just left untranslated or and because they're untranslated they're thus just left obsolete or they were literally stolen and so we have tons of missing documents so unless of course someone starts translating some of the works that we still have there is still a lot of perspective and history left out and that deserves recognition and acknowledgement so i just hope that this episode going forward at least burns some fire in some audience mind to you know become a historian here in the philippine war as always we hope you enjoyed your time with us and if you would like to continue the discussion or add to it you can find us on the historical studies military history discord twitter or instagram all available through our link tree found in the episode description. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Tune in next Wednesday as we take a trip to the East and explore the clandestine world of the Soviet-Chinese spy wars during the Cold War era. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.